Well, it's been a wonderful morning. I just want to thank you um, right from the start for being here for Connie's dedication. I know many of you just attend every Sunday and probably had no <laughs> idea that it was even on. Um, but nevertheless, as Mark said several times, um, we are more than just a group of people that meet on a Sunday morning. Um, in fact, our church is our family, and I'm a big believer in our church being our family. Jude, the fact that you so consistently try to befriend Ella, um, despite the fact that she is a girl that is hard to impress, um, means something. Even the toy that Connie was holding was a toy made by Jude. Uh, Judy Petering, always welcoming us um, and feeling very genuine, which is lovely, um, and makes us feel just um, so delighted to be here. Um, Dennis and Nikki, um, I just feel like we're just doing life together. Um, you guys are possibly the most thoughtfully encouraging people uh, I know, and it is such a pleasure always to see you guys in the mornings with Mabel as well. And uh, anyone here from my life group, we have just the best life group. I know, because I'm the coordinator and I've seen all the others. <laughs> Ours is the best. <laughs> uh, we have so many laughs um, and we're doing more and more life together as we go through and it is brilliant. And there are more people I could speak of and even more that I actually don't know all that well yet, but I'm looking forward to including you guys into our family. So I just want to encourage everyone you 100% have my permission to teach my kids about God, teach me about God as well. Um, but just as a side note, if I find out that you've been teaching them something false, you will never see me coming. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's pray before we get into uh, the word we've heard. Father, we come before you. Lord, we are desperate to hear your word. We have heard and sung this morning that you are ready with open arms to welcome us back through Jesus Christ. But we're still in a place where we struggle with our sin, Lord. We are not in heaven yet. And so we pray that you would continue to reveal to us through your word who you are. Lord, and let it not just be words that fall on deaf ears, but ones that sink into our bones. Lord, that shape and change us, that sanctify us. Let us grow richer this morning for having known you, more delighted in you. Father, I pray for everyone here this morning, for my family, Lord, that you would bless them with the riches of who you are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So it is fairly fitting this morning that my parents are here, particularly my father. He's looking nervous. When I was growing up, Dad had the crazy idea of equipping me with all the skills and abilities and tools to function as an independent adult. The really crazy stuff like how to shoot a bow and arrow, how to shoot a gun. He taught me how to sharpen blades by eye on a grinder and make small explosives. <laughs> Little did I realise that it sounds like he was training me to be a professional hitman. Uh, but more along the lines, he also taught me how to use a screwdriver, how to use paintbrushes, sanders and lathes, and he taught me the fine art of garage sale haggling. He taught me many things to equip me for adulthood, and amongst those things, he taught me how to service my own car. Here is a photo of that very same model, the 85 Ford Laser. Isn't she a beauty? 
This car, in fact, is, is just a photo I found online of the same model, but is up for sale for $60, if you're interested. <laughs> Now, despite my father's noble intentions of shaping me into a more than capable man, uh, I did not really, I still don't know really that much about what happens underneath the hood of a car. As far as I'm concerned, my car runs on the power of prayer alone. <laughs> but in those early days of the Ford Laser, this meant I had very little assurance as to, whether, as to the condition of my car. Would it make the distance? And the longer the trip, the more insecure I felt. I was stranded on the side of the freeway more than once, in fact. The only certainty I had in this car was that it would find itself at point A. Point B was never assured. <laughs> had I known, though, had I known what my father was trying to teach me and understood the mechanics of the vehicle, my confidence would have been boosted. In the same way, Paul, in the verses that we heard so well read this morning, is explaining the mechanics of the gospel that we have already heard in the chapters of Romans. He has explained in those opening chapters where it is that the gospel has come from and where it is going. The destination of the trip is set. We start in sin, of which we are all condemned. But the gospel does not stop there, not in this place of desperation. That is point A only, the starting point. And thankfully, that is not where the gospel leaves us. We find quickly that this place, uh, that placing our faith in Jesus by hopping into this vehicle that is the gospel leaves us not at point A, but in a very different place indeed from where we started. Instead of being condemned or in condemnation country, we are now found in justification jurisdiction where we find verses such as what Amy preached on last week where instead of being condemned we are now at peace with God that was chapter 5 verse 1 and in the following weeks the trip is going to continue we have peace with God and then we had righteousness and then it continues on to sanctification now, I'm not going to steal Mark's sermon thunder for next week, so if you don't know what sanctification is, hold your questions for him. He can deal with that one. That is the trip that Paul has been telling us about. But now we want to pop the hood, and he wants to pop the hood with us to tell us how it is that this gospel vehicle works. How can we have assurance in it? What are the mechanics of the gospel? What is the outline of some of those gears that make it move and effective for getting us away from condemnation to justification and sanctification? Paul is teaching us about what is called here in theological words, federal headship. Don't let the term turn you off because it is actually a wonderful thing. Federal headship is the idea that one man just one, can stand in representation for all of humanity. Which means that the words that he speaks and the actions that he takes are not just his, but everyone's. The commands he receives are commands for everyone. The rewards he receives are rewards for everyone. The way in which God looks at him, either in condemnation or justification, is the same way that God looks at us. If he is righteous, everyone is righteous. If he is disobedient, everyone is disobedient. 
This one person is a representative of us completely. Not representing humanity on a generic level, but on a personal level. For Australians, though, this is a remarkably difficult concept to accept. We're a nation of individuals. We do not like the idea of handing over our voice and our will to the whims of another. Either because of a deep-seated mistrust in the capability of others or a fear of vulnerability, we do not like this. Imagine, if you will, that I was this representative. I speak and I act on behalf of you, and in fact, on behalf of everyone. Imagine for a moment that while in this role, I was caught speeding. The consequences for me usually would be a $400 ticket and a handful of demerit points. A heavy blow on, every, on any day and every day. But because I was in the role as representative, you all receive in the mail a $400 bill each. You all have the same demerit points taken. More than that, the letter says, your name is as guilty as mine. You are as much a perpetrator of this speeding fine as I am. What would you think about that? How do you think about receiving a bill like that in the mail? I think I would be receiving a few calls. The cry of Allgate would be, this is unfair, I didn't do this. I wasn't there, I would have done something different. I shouldn't be suffering for the consequences of a lead-footed associate pastor. Isn't this what we'd be saying? We would prefer instead of having a, another person as our representative to represent ourselves. We could do it better. Or, if I have to have another person, I want to pick them. There is no smooth way of saying this next part. So I'm just going to rip off the band-aid. That is wrong thinking. That is not how the Bible operates. One man can and one man does represent all of humanity. The text we read this morning highlighted it seven times in nine verses. Paul mentions that Adam in the Garden of Eden was the federal head of humanity. In him, everyone was condemned. It is this system into which we were born and created. It is a truth and it is foundational. This is how humanity was supposed to operate. Adam himself was created by God, chosen by God to be perfect in his representation of man. We could not have done it better. And we could not have picked someone better than the one that God made specifically for the task. That he chose specifically for the task of representing all of humanity. But Paul doesn't stop with Adam, but states that Jesus also is a federal head of those who believe in him. This is the mechanics of the gospel. Two options for who will be your representative. Now, if you were a non-Christian that was reading this and you were reading about all this federal headship, Adam, Jesus stuff, what would it sound like? It would sound like a, would you rather? 
Have you ever played the game Would You Rather? I had a, in fact, last week, my Old Testament lecturer, Luke Wisely, sat down next to me at lunch and said, Nat, I have a question for you. And of course, I, being the ever-attentive and respectful student that I am, uh, was delighted to provide him with my wisdom. <laughs> and he said, would you rather die from a venomous snake bite or be constricted? Man, college it just keeps you on your toes, doesn't it? <laughs> I think that we should play this game. So, would you rather die from a venomous snake bite or constriction? Now, where do our minds immediately go? We start to add up the pros and the cons. You don't get a choice. There is no fence sitting on this. <laughs> pros and cons for venomous snake bite. You get time to say goodbye. If you're being constricted, at least you can't speak, you can't communicate, but venomous snake bite, you get the opportunities. I should say that Matthew Winter, Anne and Ivan's eldest, helped me put this together. <laughs> so this is not just me. Um, another pro, claustrophobic. If you're afraid of tiny, small spaces, constriction's not the way to go. Venomous snake bite, 100% of the way. And of course, the last one, and possibly the most morbid of all of them, there is an open casket option. <laughs> Constriction. Newsworthy. There's not many people in Australia that are passing away from constriction. You know, venomous snake bites, I mean, I don't think many people are passing away from them as many uh, as what could have been, but constriction, never. Newsworthy. Agoraphobia, the afra being afraid of open spaces. Constriction is definitely a way to go if you're afraid of open spaces. And of course, there's no leftovers to deal with. All right, let's see a show of hands, legitimately. Who would be for venomous snake bite? Wow, I'm disappointed in all of you. Who would be for constriction? Yeah, yeah, it's unique. I think it's better. Let's do another one. Would you rather be beaten by two 15-year-olds or 15 two-year-olds? <laughs> All right, pros and cons, it's less embarrassing. Juvenile detention, I want justice if I'm gonna be beaten up. At least 15 to, uh, two 15-year-olds, there will be some sort of consequence. Two, 15 two-year-olds, really, you're just going to point the finger at mum and dad, aren't you? And it's going to be over a lot faster. <laughs> survival, the survival rate of being beaten up by 15 two-year-olds is much higher. It's going to hurt a little less. And it could be cute. <laughs> now, the real one, the would you rather. Oh, sorry. All right. Hands for two 15-year-olds? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I assume survival's got a fair bit to do with it. 15 two-year-olds? Yeah, yeah. Did anyone not put their hand up at all? I just refused to participate. Yeah, you'll be coming into it later, don't worry. Would you rather be represented by Adam or Jesus? Pros and cons. Immediately with Adam we see that he disobeyed God. 
He was told not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he did. That action of disobedience now mars the record, not just for him, but for every human, born and yet to be born, because he represented everyone. Upon each one of our records of guilt now reads, ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's on my record and it's on yours. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death came through sin, and so death spread to all because all have sinned. The second consideration of Adam is not simply the mark of sin upon our records, but the result of it, a permanent consequence. As God brought us life, stepping away from him brings us decay and death. Now humanity is forever marked as sinners and we are forever bound to die, to feel its sting and condemnation. The one who once looked upon us in perfect love and life, our Creator. Now in His eyes, we cannot see that sparkle of joy He had once in humanity. Instead, what resides in His eyes as a just and loving God is condemnation. We are guilty before Him because of Adam and because of us, the sin that marks us. We are now separated from Him, and even in His mercy, He must have justice. Even in his long enduring patience, his slowness to anger and justice, uh, justice will be had and we are the condemned because we and Adam are guilty. These are the pros for Team Adam. And a bleaker series of pros I have never seen. But let's now look at the pros of Jesus. Righteousness. As we spoke about at the beginning of the sermon, the gospel starts at point A, with Adam and his sin, death and condemnation as the beginning of the journey, but then travels away from it. So we see the direct contrast of sin and righteousness. How does this happen? How are we seen now as righteous? Because Jesus was righteous. The answer is federal headship. One man can represent everyone. As federal headship doomed us in Adam, it saves us in Jesus. In his good works and righteousness, we are held in credit as much as he is. Just the sting of the idea of federal headship moments ago. Though we sin through one man, we are made righteous through another. It was spelt out in, five, in chapter 5 verse 1 last week. Instead of being seen as condemned in the eyes of God as we are with Adam, with Jesus we are at peace with God. No longer do we need to fear his justice. With Jesus as our rep, we come down now on the right side of the law. How? Because in the actions of Jesus becoming our representative, we gained his righteousness and he gained our sin. 
This is federal headship. He represented us. And so all that we do is also in him. And with that sin that he gained from us, he suffered the justice that was required of us. This strikes home, doesn't it? He died because he desired to represent you and I and all of humanity or all of those who place their faith in him. And our sin needed to be dealt with. This is the true actions of godly federal headship. He paid the cost of our sin and so for us the cost of our sin is paid and we are made just again, no longer condemned. Romans 5.18 says, Therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. This list looks very different to Adam's, doesn't it? But the pros are not even stopping here. For in Jesus, we also gain life. Life, just as we participated in Jesus' death and his penalty for sin, so we also share in his resurrection. We are not just made neutral to God just again, but we are brought into life, eternal life. Never again will Jesus taste death and never again will we if we have our faith in him. Galatians 2, 19 and 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And in chapter 5, verses 15 to 17, is a chunk of scripture that is arguing about how much better Jesus is as a federal head than Adam. Adam committed one sin and killed everyone. But there is so much more than one sin now. But one act of righteous love from Jesus consumes all of it. How much better is Jesus as the federal head? Picture for a moment that we were to place a single black stone for every sin that was ever committed. Adam's first and then, for, and then Eve's and then on and on, stone upon stone, layer upon layer. How tall, how long, how deep, how wide would the wall of midnight stone be? Taller than Everest, surely, longer than the Great Wall of China, deeper than the Mariana Trench and wider than the ocean would this stone wall be. Yet it says that the righteous acts of Jesus lead to justification and life for all. The blood of the cross is like a crimson tidal wave that is in orders of magnitude larger than that wall. Than the mountain of sin and this crimson tidal wave envelops it. And as we look upon the tumultuous waters, you cannot even see a hint of black underneath it. Were we to plumb its depths now, no stone would be found. So much better 
and complete is the justification and the righteousness of Jesus. And lastly, it's free. You gain his life, his death, his justice, his righteousness at the cost of having faith in him as your representative. Now let's be honest, there were a few people that didn't put their hands up as to how they would like to die by snakebite or beatings. People, there were some people who sat on the fence and didn't put their hands up. What Paul has been trying to make clear from the very beginning of Romans is that there are no fence-sitters. There is a default position to this game and that is that Adam is representative. Sin, death and condemnation are not a choice but a default. You start with Adam. So the question really is, are you going to have faith in Jesus? While this is a list that Paul gives us, while, sorry, this list is... Get my head back in the right place. While this is a list Paul gives us, and it sounds like a would-you-rather, and a list of comparisons to sway us from one side or to the other, we must realise that the letter of Romans is not written to non-Christians. It is written to an existing group of believers, people that have already placed their faith in Jesus Christ, just like us. These people have already got Jesus as their representative. So why? Why is it that Paul is comparing Adam to Jesus for the already converted? Well, what is it that we have gained from hearing this list ourselves this morning? What can be gained from understanding the mechanics under the hood of the car of the gospel that is taking you from condemnation to justification and beyond? Assurance. He is reminding the church that their assurance is in Jesus Christ and that the mechanics of the gospel is the only thing that will get them the distance that they need to go in this life. We must be aware, aware of the ongoing lies of Satan and the deception of our own struggle with sin that will tempt us to place our faith in vehicles other than the gospel to get us where we need to go. Romans 5.2 says that Christians boast in the hope of sharing the glory of God. That is where we're going and the gospel Jesus, as our representative, is the way to get there. And now we are being assured this is guaranteed. Paul is writing of federal headship. He is writing of Jesus as our representative, as so much better than all that Adam ever had to offer, so that the church will be 110% assured of its salvation in Jesus. The gospel is the vehicle of success. And if we remember that image of the crimson water, no sin could ever be found. No salvation, our salvation is assured. And so long as Jesus remains in glory, so will we. 
we are guaranteed forever success. Because he is our representative. It must be said that federal headship is a wonderful thing. It is the mechanism under the hood of the gospel that takes us to salvation. It is through one man, Jesus, that any who believe, any who have faith to make him their representative are saved. Just as we gain the personal condemnation of sin for Adam, in Jesus we are justified, righteous and assured entrance into, the God, into God's glory. So let us receive the words this morning from Paul as they were intended. Be assured. We are in safe hands of Jesus as our representative, as our federal head, one man who represents all of us who have faith. All praise and glory to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give thanks for the way in which you created the world, for the way in which you designed us to come under one federal head. Even though Adam condemned us, Lord, it is through that mechanism that we are saved to you and assured eternal glory with you. There is no time in our lives that we need to be worried or scared or uncertain that we may lose our salvation because to do so would be to question Jesus. But you hold us tightly. Father, we pray this morning, Lord, that you would continue to remind us and every generation after us to continue to remember that Jesus is our hope, that the vehicle of the gospel is the only way to life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.